On August 12, 2017, a Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, turned deadly when a 20-year-old Ohio man accelerated his car into a crowd of counter-protesters, killing 32-year-old Heather Hare and leaving 19 others injured, five critically. More than four years later, a civil trial is underway, with a group of Charlottesville community members suing the Nazis and white supremacists they hold responsible for the violence. This week, we'll get an insider look at the trial from Amy Spitalnik, Executive Director of Integrity First America, a group founded to support litigation against the organizers of that 2017 rally. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, Charlottesville remains a very emotional topic for many Americans. One of the scariest demonstrations by neo-Nazis in recent memory. The violence that came from that. Set up the conversation we're about to have and tell us a little bit about our guest. Well, so... In addition to some of the uh, criminal suits or criminal cases that have been brought against the specific perpetrators of the violence in Charlottesville, there's been a civil a civil suit brought against the organizers, against some of the neo-Nazi groups that have organized in the background uh, to make the Charlottesville violence possible. And we have with us Amy Spitalnik, who is the executive director of Integrity First America. They are an organization that's been set up to support this litigation. And we're going to hear from her about how the trial is going, what the genesis was, what some of the issues related to being a staffer uh, and working on these issues, and just hear everything A to Z and maybe ask some provocative questions about her take on other types of anti-Semitism. All right, great. Well, and Amy, uh, no stranger uh, to us, a Jewish insider, I think started uh, more than a decade ago as press secretary for J Street, then was a spokesperson uh, for City Hall for uh, Mayor de Blasio in his first term, uh, now uh, in this new role. So, uh, Jared, without further ado, uh, uh, let's uh, let's bring her on. Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. We're excited to have you on. Can you maybe level set for our listeners? We're going to be talking about the civil trial today, but first came a, a criminal trial. James Fields Jr. pled guilty to 29 hate crimes to avoid the death penalty, and he's now serving multiple life sentences without the possibility of parole. What's the genesis of this idea to sue in civil court? So there has been a handful of criminal prosecutions in the aftermath of Unite the Right, most notably the Fields prosecution that you just mentioned. But the general lack of accountability in the aftermath of Unite the Right is really why we believe this case is so important. What became crystal clear in the days after the violence is that what happened was no accident, but rather it was planned meticulously in advance on social media, where leaked Discord chats that came out in mid-2017 illustrated how these defendants, or the def- people who are now defendants in our lawsuit and their co-conspirators, talked about everything in advance, from what to wear, what to bring for lunch, to which weapons to carry, to whether they could hit protesters with cars and then claim self-defense. And it was very clear that that, again, wasn't an accident wasn't a simple clash between two sides, but rather was a meticulously planned, racially motivated conspiracy to attack people. And we have laws that are meant to protect against just that. And so given the general lack of accountability for extremists over the last few years, cases like this that hold accountable those directly responsible 
are all the more crucial, particularly given how little justice and accountability there has been in the aftermath of Unite the Right. So, so these chats that, you, that that somebody leaked, I mean, it sounds like a treasure trove. First of all, I've never heard of this platform. Like, what is this platform? Who uses it? And who leaked this? So we don't know who leaked it still four years later, but they were leaked to a nonprofit journalism organization called Unicorn Riot. And Unicorn Riot is actually currently live tweeting the trial. Um, so uh, they they have been very engaged in this effort. Um, these, Discord is a platform that's typically used by video gamers. People who are listening might use it if they play games, if they have kids who play games. But it was effectively co-opted by the organizers of the Unite the Right to become their central planning hub. And this doesn't mean that all of the planning happened on Discord. Our team has collected a mountain of evidence, 5.3 terabytes of evidence over the last few years, which translates to 5.3 million megabytes. I learned the difference between a terabyte and a megabyte um, in uh, collecting and storing this trove of evidence. But on the Discord platforms, they had different channels from transportation to flags and symbolism to weaponry. Um, and there were even this sharing of memes about hitting protesters with cars, which is, of course, precisely what happened. And so those Discord chats really provided a unique opportunity in the immediate aftermath of Unite the Right to get a sort of deep dive into what had actually happened. And you don't really get discovery like that before you file a lawsuit. But our team was able to get there um, to take these chats that had been put out into the world and use them to file a lawsuit that I think is far more comprehensive and detailed than a typical piece of civil litigation might be. Of course, since then, over the last few years, we've been steeped in the discovery process, three plus years of fighting with the defendants to collect the evidence to which our plaintiffs are entitled, even as their phones um, magically fall in toilets or are electrocuted, every trick in the book to avoid turning over evidence. Um, and the judge has, has issued some pretty strong sanctions uh, and even found some in contempt of court because of how flagrantly they violated court orders on that regard. But we have collected, as I said, 5.3 terabytes of evidence that supplement those Discord chats that first came out four years ago. And it's that evidence that has been presented over the course of the last few weeks of trial. So I think you just kind of alluded to it, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. Um, why is this case taking so long to get to trial? Uh, I mean, it sounds like discovery has been a bear, but what else has been going on that's taken it four years uh, to, to, to come before a judge? Well, suing Nazis isn't cheap or easy in general. It's harder when those neo-Nazis try every trick to avoid accountability, including dropping phones in toilets or otherwise. And it's even harder when we have a global pandemic. And so all of those factors combined um, made it take about four years to get to this moment. We first filed this case October of 2017. Trial started nearly four years to the day um, in 2018, the court threw out the defendant's motions to dismiss the case in a really, I think, well-written, important opinion that can be found on our website at IFA. And I encourage folks to read whether you're a lawyer or not. It's a it's a good read. Um, and then since then, for the last three years, we've been in this discovery process, but it has been really challenging. 
with the with the misconduct, with the phones going missing, um, and our team has been tireless in filing for sanctions. We've won five-figure financial penalties against some of the defendants. Two have had bench warrants out for their arrests, including one who's already set in jail. And going into trial, we actually won a number of what's called evidentiary sanctions, which establishes some of the core allegations of our lawsuit as fact in this case against some key defendants. And so despite how challenging the defendants have made this, we headed into trial with significant impacts on these defendants already. Richard Spencer has called the case, quote, financially crippling. Defendants have talked about how we've effectively bankrupted some of their uh, organizations and their operations even before trial. We've marginalized some of these neo-Nazi leaders and defendants through the uh, accountability they've already faced. So even... Uh, with the challenges, it's been heartening to see the impact it's had on some of these leaders and groups. And, and you talk about defendants. I think people listening are probably like, oh, there's like one, two, three, you know, folks sitting there and, and you're suing them. But you have something like, what, two dozen defendants? I mean, that's that's a massive number of defendants there. H- how did you, first of all, manage, you know, suing that many people at once? And and how did you determine who, like of all the people in the world, how did you determine these were going to be the, the, you know, the people we sue? Yeah, the defendants really are a who's who of the violent white supremacist movement in America. Some of them are household names like Richard Spencer, groups like National Socialist Movement, which is one of the country's largest neo-Nazi groups, Um, really just some of the most violent extremist neo-Nazis, white supremacists and organizations in this country. Um, And we're suing them because, as the Discord chats and other evidence illustrates, these are the two dozen people and groups most directly responsible for orchestrating what happened. There were, of course, hundreds of neo-Nazis in Charlottesville that weekend. We've seen the images, the torch march, um, the um, supposed rally on August 12th that turned into the car attack and other violence. Um, And so we know that there were hundreds of extremists there, but this suit specifically takes on the two dozen people and groups that the evidence illustrates were most directly responsible for planning that violence, for engaging in that violence, and then, of course, celebrating that violence afterwards, where so many of them called this a great moral victory for their movement. Um, And so historically, there's been civil litigation that has taken on uh, sort of smaller groups, uh, numbers of, of extremists or hate groups. And this case is somewhat unique because it is more ambitious. It does take on a larger swath of the leadership specifically for their racially motivated anti-Semitic violent conspiracy. Um, and as uh, we mentioned, the, the court, of course, upheld the case against virtually all defendants except for one three years ago, which is why you now have two dozen defendants on trial in Charlottesville today. So, and, and so just to talk a little bit more about the precedent, and I, I seem to remember there being a plot line from the West Wing when Sam Seaborn says, we're going to sue the, the, the KKK. But, but, it, but in all seriousness, what is the precedent for this legally? Um, and how do those other cases turn out? So there's, there's two things I'll say here. I think first and foremost, the central statute in our lawsuit is something called the Ku Klux Klan Act, 
of 1871, which is exactly what it sounds like. It was passed 150 years ago to protect recently freed slaves from Klan violence in the South, and it's been used in key moments throughout history, including during the Freedom Rider era in a case called Griffin v. Breckenridge that was cited extensively um, in some of the filings in our case, including by the judge. Um, and it's a case, it's a law that is intentionally created to give private citizens a right of recourse against other private citizens who motivated by hate, which I should note, according to case law, explicitly includes anti-Semitism in addition to racism, um, commit this sort of violence, conspire to engage in this sort of violence. And so sadly, this is precisely what the KKK Act was designed to address. The court agreed and said, if we prove the facts as alleged in our complaint, this is indeed um, a violation of the KKK Act. And sadly, in the years since we've filed our case, we've seen a number of other KKK Acts come, come out, um, particularly in response to January 6th, some cases brought by the Capitol Police and by members of Congress uh, in, an, in an attempt to hold accountable that violent conspiracy. And so sadly, the uh, renaissance that the KKK Act is having in the year 2021 is uh, a testament perhaps to the moment we're living in and the rise of extremism, but hopefully also a reminder that we have tools that we can use to seek accountability. Um, more broadly, of course, um, and I think what Sam Seaborn referenced in the West Wing all those years ago is there's a history of cases like the Michael Donald case, um, which use similar civil statutes to hold accountable the Klan and other extremists. The Aryan Nation case is another one that frequently comes up. And these cases, much like KKK Act cases, have been used to effectively bankrupt, disrupt, and dismantle hate groups and their leaders. And it's the very same idea here, using civil litigation to go after the finances, the operations, um, and holding accountable these groups and their leaders um, is historically uh, a very effective tactic. And certainly in this case already, we've seen the impacts and are hopeful that our plaintiffs can win large judgments at trial that will really um, underscore the, that sort of consequence that uh, extremists will face for participating in this kind of violence. So so the trial is ongoing now. Uh, I know you have to be careful in, in how you speak about it uh, before the trial's over, but to the extent you can, just let us know, how is the trial going from your perspective? When would you expect a verdict in this case uh, coming forward? So we are uh, wrapping up week three of the trial at this point. Um, it started October 25th. It's on the court calendar to November 19th. And over the last few weeks, our plaintiffs have been making their case. So the jury has now heard testimony from all of our plaintiffs. Um, our plaintiffs include people like Natalie Romero and Devin Willis, who were surrounded and attacked with not just racist slurs, but direct assault and violence at the Torch March on UVA's campus Friday night. They've heard from um, plaintiffs like Marcus Martin and Marissa Blair and Thomas Baker, who were directly hit by that car during the car attack. Natalie was, of course, also hit by the car and fractured her skull. Marcus is um, the man in the iconic Pulitzer-winning photo of the car going through the crowd. He sort of sprawled across the back wearing red sneakers. Thomas is seen fl flipping over the hood. I think hearing their testimony has been really, really powerful, not just for the jury, but for the world to hear. The fact that these people are choosing to relive the most traumatic moments of their life in an attempt to hold accountable those responsible is I'm just in awe of them for for doing this. And in some cases, they're literally being cross-examined by some of the very neo-Nazis responsible because some of these defendants are representing themselves. And so their courage to sort of sit there and not just relive that trauma, but be 
be face to face with those responsible um, is just stunning. And of course, the jury and and those following have also heard really stunning testimony from the defendants themselves, where they'll get on the stand and um, talk about how much they love Hitler and what their favorite Holocaust jokes are. Um, you really couldn't make some of this up if you tried. The ex-girlfriend of one of our defendants, who herself was a leader of one of these white supremacist groups and has since left the movement, testified about how he had a day job in HR in an extermination company and would come home and talk about how he wished he could exterminate Jews instead and how they would go to parties at Richard Spencer's apartment, which was called the Fashloft, and talk about, for example, whether it was legal to hit counter-protesters with cars. And this happened just weeks before Unite the Right, which was an event organized by her boyfriend and by Richard Spencer and others. And so it really has just been stunning. I've been steeped in this case and this hate for years now as part of my job. And it is still stunning to hear this sort of violent hate day in and day out as part of this trial. And I suspect that anyone following this um, is feeling so, the same way. The, uh, you know, being, being the, one of the lawyers on the call or one of the lawyers on the pod today, um, the other side there's no, said there's no case here. They say that you just can't sue them for protected speech, no matter how vile you think it is. And I guess what's the answer to that legal argument in a nutshell? The answer is, is a simple one. If they had come to Charlottesville with their swastikas, with their chants, um, with their views uh, and their symbols that all of us might abhor and simply stood on the corner and waved those flags and chanted those things, it would have absolutely been protected conduct. As abhorrent as any of us might find it, that is protected speech in America and they have every right to do that. But that's not what they did. They planned violence meticulously in advance through text messages and those Discord chats and other communications that we've talked about. They came to Charlottesville and engaged in that violence, and then they celebrated that violence afterwards. And so again, that's not simply speech, that's a conspiracy. The same way if the three of us were gonna sit here on this podcast and talk about robbing a bank, and then we went and robbed that bank, our speech and furtherance of that conspiracy wouldn't be protected. So too is their planning in these texts and social media chats and else, uh, elsewhere, that is also not protected speech. That is, again, a conspiracy. And so our laws are designed to hold that accountable. They've tried to muddy the waters and simply say that this is about speech. But the evidence in this case is just overwhelming um, and uh, really makes clear that this was never intended to be um, a free speech event, but a violent show of force, um, or as one of our defendants called it, the start of a racial holy war. Uh, you know, Amy, I've seen in press reports, um, and I know that according to the same press report, there's a gag order on this now of some kind, but it seems that security is a big issue for this trial. Uh, I think our listeners would understand that, the nature of the people you're suing. Um, you know, apparently it's like your top expense, according to the Washington Post. How do you approach this? I think about movies that I've seen in the past, you know, some of these lawyers who took on the KKK in the South and, and you know, there's a lot of these, these movies from the last, you know, two decades you think about. How do you prepare your family, you know, for something like this? You know, how do you say, like, I'm going to go through this. This is likely what's going to happen, but but it's worth it. And sort of to the extent you can talk about it, you know, what is the security situation like? 
Yeah, you're absolutely right that security is by far our top budget item. So the legal work in this case has been um, incredible and donated by five different law firms that have done work um, over the course of uh, the last four years of this case. Um, There are, of course, tons of other expenses, uh, including collecting evidence from these defendants' phones and computers, storing that evidence, the logistics of trial, but Uh, By far, security is our top expense, and that's because threats against our team, our plaintiffs, and otherwise have been significant over the years. I can't talk to some of the specifics right now while we're – while trial is ongoing, but suffice it to say that um, we are not taking precautions – um, out of an abundance of caution, we're taking precautions because every expert in the security space has agreed with us that they are very necessary. And unfortunately, that's been proven true over the last um, few weeks. Um, and so I'm not sure how you pre- how you prepare anyone for this. I, I wish I had probably better prepared my own family and my team and their families for this. It's not something you ever really can expect until it's it's part of your life. And, uh, you know, we're here in Charlottesville where uh, we are extra careful about what's happening during trial. The security that our IFA supporters have so generously helped fund um, is significant and very real while we're here. Um, it's it's a little emotionally jarring to, to have to, you know, for example, talk to my family about this. I'm the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors and having to um, share with them the, the sort of threats that we get that draw on the same anti-Semitism that uh, was so central to what happened to our own family decades ago is just a very strange and emotional thing that I'm not sure I ever expected to see in my lifetime. Amy, if you could talk a little bit more about that, um, being the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors, what does this mean for you to get to put Nazis on trial? Um, it's got to be a pretty powerful experience and have a lot of different emotions that come with it. Yeah, look, I think for many in the Jewish community and and, and those particularly who are children or grandchildren or survivors, for a long time it felt like this faraway thing, this piece of history that was simply just a cautionary tale um, that we would learn about. Uh, that we would hear about from our family members. Um, And for me, Unite the Right was really the moment where it seemed clear that it was no longer just a far away cautionary tale, but a form of extremism and violence and hate that was all too real in our country right now. And and so in some ways, it's, it's heartbreaking and baffling that decades after, you know, my grandparents survived, the rest of their family were not so lucky. The very same hate is rearing its ugly head here. Um, We don't need to go through all the stats in terms of rising anti-Semitism and white supremacy and extremism in this country. The facts, sadly, are clear that we are dealing with a crisis of extremism, um, anti-Semitism being so central to it. but it is still heartbreaking to see that very same hate um, so emboldened and empowered. But I also think that unlike my grandparents' generation, there's a big difference. We, we live in a country that has a rule of law and that has a justice system. And certainly it is a system that needs a lot of work and has many, many flaws and issues. But the goal here, the hope here is that we can use the tools we do have to hold those responsible for this violence accountable. 
which is a major difference. And so that gives me some hope. Uh, and uh, again, it's not a perfect system. We are certainly seeing that in a variety of ways right now, not just in this case, but across the country as we grapple with a variety of uh, responses to extremism. But it is one that we can and must use however possible um, to seek the accountability my grandparents' generation couldn't. Wow. That's, that's impactful. Um, Amy, switching gears a little bit, um, Rich and I talk a lot about all kinds of anti-Semitism on this show. And we, we, we often trade barbs of left-leaning anti-Semitism and right-leaning anti-Semitism and who's worse or who's having a worse week and who needs to be more critical. Do you ever imagine a suit like this one against far-left anti-Semites uh, and any violence that could, could come from that? Well, as far as I know, there hasn't been a Unite the Right on the left or some sort of comparable event. And that isn't to say that there isn't very real anti-Semitism on the left. There obviously is. It is real. It is alarming. Um, and it, has, it is manifesting in new and certainly emboldened ways, over, particularly over the last few years, as we've seen. And I think it's important to make that clear. But I also think that there is no equivalency in the moment that we're in between anti-Semitism on the left and the right right now. Again, that doesn't mean that there isn't very real and dangerous anti-Semitism on the left. But we are living at a moment where neo-Nazis are so emboldened that they are walking into synagogues and killing people during Shabbat services and chanting Jews will not replace us on our streets before they violently attack people. We are seeing the ideology that fuels this extremism become increasingly normalized, this idea of the great replacement in which Jews are the puppet masters orchestrating the replacement of the white race, a white genocide through support for immigrants and refugees, black and brown communities, and a variety of other people. And we're seeing how that sort of extremism is seeping into the mainstream. I mean, even Tucker Carlson giving it a primetime home. Um, and I don't think it's partisan to call that out. It can't be partisan to call that out. We can acknowledge that there's anti-Semitism that manifests in a variety of forms. And we can agree with, frankly, the Department of Homeland Security under President Trump, which said that white supremacy is currently the most persistent and lethal threat to our country. And so I think it's dangerous if we try to create false equivalencies, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't address and combat anti-Semitism in whatever form it rears its ugly head. But we need to be clear-eyed about where the threats are um, and and hold those responsible accountable. Of course, if there were something like this to happen um, from a different ideological perspective, I would agree that we should be taking them to court in the same way. But there, as far as I'm aware, um, no sort of far-left conspiracy to do what the defendants in this lawsuit did, which is to violently attack a community motivated by this hate. Um, and, and terrorize um, that community across an entire weekend. Uh, Amy, I have a question for you. Uh, just sort of switching gears, as Jared likes to say, um, you were spokesperson for New York City Mayor to Bill de Blasio in his first term, I believe. Um, among the jobs you've held, uh, where does that rank in terms of difficulty? <laughs> I will say... Neo-Nazis neo <laughs> or being a City Hall spokesperson? What's tougher? <laughs> I, I will say I've, uh, I must be a masochist because over my career I've worked on, uh, I've worked in the Jewish community, on Israel issues, I've worked in politics, and now I work 
on neo-Nazis. So it's hard to know which is more difficult because they all have their own unique challenges. Um, I will say in some ways being, uh, being a flack in New York politics is harder than running an organization that holds neo-Nazis accountable um, in certain ways. Of course, the uh, risks of, of that job were perhaps um, less than the risks of this job, but certainly the challenges um, were significant. Uh, and that also feels like several lifetimes ago at this point. Um, it's, it's crazy to think that uh, the beginning of the de Blasio administration was just eight years ago. Um, and everything that has happened in this country. And I think sort of on a more serious note, the fact that the world that we're living in now is just so different from that world. I think if you had told me in 2014, when I was in that job, that eight years later, I would be suing neo-Nazis for a living, I would have probably thought you were crazy. And so I think it's uh, it's hard to sort of assess what's a more challenging job um, but certainly I think the ways in which this world has evolved since then is, uh, is both sad and interesting. And you mentioned, uh, your work, uh, probably over a decade ago at this point uh, in the Jewish world. Um, and I, I guess with the holidays coming up, I'm the, I'm the ghost of jobs past. Uh, so, so that's my role here on the, <laughs> on the podcast. Uh, you, you spent uh, time, uh, because a spokesperson for, for J street as press secretary, um, obviously, uh, pretty controversial group, um, as we talk about issues revolving around, uh, those issues today on our podcast a lot, the moniker adopted at the time, I think is still there pro Israel pro peace. Um, but for critics like me, we've, you know, seen a little bit hard pressed to find any evidence of an organization doing anything that is truly pro Israel to, you know, for some of us, it seems like they spend 99% of their time attacking the state of Israel, not supporting it. Example, they recently held a fundraiser for Marie Newman after she voted against funding the Iron Dome. So I guess the question is, and I know you're you're 10 years on from this now, but if the goal while you were there was to be a, a home for progressives as a pro-Israel group, to be truly a pro-Israel, pro-peace group, is it really fulfilling its mission that it started out to be? Well, I have not been J Street spokesperson in, I think, almost 11 years. So this is me... Simply speaking, in my personal capacity, but look, I I am someone who loves Israel dearly. I spent a year of my life studying and living there. Um, certainly, it has been important um, to my own family and to so many I hold near and dear. And I chose to go work at J Street because of that love of Israel, um, and I'm really proud that I did. And I think that there uh, certainly, I think as we're having this conversation, Israel has a congressional delegation meeting with the prime minister of Israel right now. And so I think we can all disagree on whether um, on Israeli policy, on the occupation, on a variety of different topics, um, and still accept that people can support Israel in a variety of different ways, even if they disagree with the policy of its government the same way that we, I'm sure, I'm sure you, Rich, disagree with President Biden on many things, and Jared disagrees disagreed with President Trump on many things at the time, um, and certainly I did as well. That doesn't change the love I have for this country or the love I have um, for any other country like Israel. Um, and so uh, I think it's, I, I'm really proud of the work we did there. And I think the ways in which the conversation on Israel and the space J Street has helped create for particularly younger people who didn't feel like they necessarily had a home in this conversation has been really helpful 
not just to building out the pro-Israel tent, but to building out the Jewish tent and making people feel like they have a space. And so I was really proud to work there all those years ago. Um, like I said, I must be a masochist because I went from Israel, uh, Israel issues to working uh, in politics to now working on uh, neo-Nazis. But I think that these are the issues where the rubber meets the road for our community in many ways. Um, and I'm really proud to have worked on both. Well, I don't agree with you on J Street, but uh, coming from Illinois, having seen the Blues Brothers uh, for many, many years, and as somebody who hates Illinois Nazis, I am very glad you're you're taking the fight to uh, to these neo Nazis <laughs> now. I appreciate that. Before we let you go, we do something on every on every podcast called our lightning round, where we ask some lighthearted questions to try and get a little bit more of a sense of who you are as a person. Um, so our first one is. What is your favorite Yiddish or Hebrew word or phrase? And for this question only, profanity is allowed, as long as it's in <laughs> Hebrew or Yiddish. Um, I'm going to say Mishigas, just because I feel like it applies to so much of my life. That's a good one. I don't know if we've had that before. Mishigas. That's good. You haven't had Mishigas. Uh, I think Mishigas, and I would go right up there with Balagan. Balagan kind of was going to be, I was going to yeah. say, if I went with Hebrew, it was going to be Balagan. And yeah, I feel like yeah. both feel very applicable in my 26 life. 26 episodes to get to Mishigas. I like it. I like it. We clearly, we clearly do not have a lot of Mishigasim here on uh, the Limited Liability Podcast. <laughs> uh, okay, next question. What is your favorite Jewish food? Like a Russian daughter sandwich, just like bagel, smoked fish, schmear. I have not had that in a few weeks here in Charlottesville. I'm sure there is a delicious place to get Jewish food here in Charlottesville, but I have not been there yet. Um, and so I think one of the first things I'll do when I get back to, to New York is uh, Russ and Daughters. Okay, so when you're not on trial, what is uh, uh, your favorite book that you've read recently? Because I would imagine now you're you're laser focused on all things trial related. But if you weren't on trial, what what would be a a, a recent book that you really liked? Um, I I know the first book I plan to read whenever I am on a beach when this is all over or just back in New York is is Colson Whitehead's new book Harlem Shuffle, um, and so I'm excited for that. Um, but I honestly don't know the last time I read a book that wasn't a filing in this lawsuit. Uh, okay, and then I have one one more that isn't typically in there, but uh, what is your your favorite um, legal figure from from movie or or film? Because you're you know you're in this oh my gosh. massive lawsuit. Um, is it you know Atticus Finch, uh, some you know, um, or Vinci, Vincent LaGuardia Gambini? Uh, I think, I think your favorite fiction. I heard they canceled Atticus Finch, so I don't know if you're allowed to ask that anymore. But I know. It's <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. But, but, but who's 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 your favorite <laughs> fictional lawyer uh, from film or TV or even a book actually? I will say the a lot of a lot of the characters in my cousin Vinny have come up in off the record discussions over these last few weeks. That's perfect. And so I, I think we're gonna go with which is sort of the entire cast of my cousin Vinny. And I'm looking forward to rewatching that movie when this is over. And too. I'm sure you'll make clear the judge is not what you're referring to. So that, that that's, Correct. That's, that's, right, that right, is right, exactly. <laughs> if the judge is listening, yeah. it's not you. Definitely. Uh Amy Spital It's not you. <laughs> Amy Spitalik, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Really appreciate having you on and good luck the rest of the way in the lawsuit. Thank you so much. Wow, Rich, you know, 
I don't know whether to be incredibly uh, depressed by this conversation that, that in the year 2021, we have to file suit in civil court against neo-Nazis for being neo-Nazis and, and, and conspiring to hurt and kill people because of who they are, or to be incredibly encouraged that in the year 2021, you know, that us as a people, strangers in a strange land can take full advantage of the justice system and bring suit against neo-Nazis and the far right in contrast to what's happened maybe for the rest of history when when Jews were, were wandering to lots of different lands across the world. So I don't know whether to be really hopeful or really depressed by this just going on. Uh, listen, I think it's also a testament to the 21st century digital age where no one is immune from some of these electronic type communication leaks. You think you're on a secure platform. You think you're talking to just one person. Uh, and it sounds like you know, just great almost luck that somebody found this communication on this gaming platform, outed this amazing amount of of information. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, the timeliness of it and, and the availability of it, uh, along with obviously a very uh, massive event that caught the public's attention, uh, cost lives, uh, and you put that together, it's combustible for people who have been around for a long time. It's not like they suddenly became neo-Nazis in 2020 or in 2016. These people have been organized for a long, long time. Uh, but now there's people who have the capability to go after them in more interesting ways. Well, you also didn't have a president saying, you know, there are fine people on both sides of this, on both sides of this protest. I think, I think, you know, I, I feel, and I know you're going to disagree with me, uh, that that the former president normalized a lot of this behavior and, and and encouraged some of these fringe groups to come back out into the mainstream. Um, with, with whether he co whether he meant it or not, they took it as a sign that what they were doing was okay. And they could come out of the out of the background. I think President Trump bears responsibility uh, to, to some degree. I think a lot of this is spin and political lens and taking statements out of context. So I don't want to relitigate the Trump years. Neo Nazis are bad. We should be opposed to them. We should we should support suing them and doing anything else that is within the bounds of the rule of law to uh, to, to silence them. Um, but uh, I, you know, I, listen. I also understand there there is a political lens here. There does exist violence on the other side. We've seen attacks on Jews that are spurred by left-wing anti-Semitism. We've seen destruction of Jewish property that continues into 2021, uh, more so than what we see on on, on sort of these right-wing neo-Nazi violence uh, targeting Jewish institutions, Jewish people on the streets, you know, at the college campuses, synagogues. So I very much support efforts to go after neo-Nazis, and I would love to see efforts to go after you know, anti-Semites on the left too. If, if there's violence or destruction of property, you know, with a basis for, uh, for civil suits as well. Count me in for that too, Rich. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.